Libby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to my sponsor, Libro FM. Libro FM Audiobooks lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including many New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you get the same audiobooks at the same price as other audiobook companies, but you're going to be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. You can even choose which local bookstore you'd like to support, which is so cool. Listeners of my podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Just go to Libro.fm, ro.fm and enter code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. With every time you listen to an audiobook, now you can be proud that you're supporting a local bookstore. And the best part is that I have my own playlist on Libro FM, which is so cool. So the books that have been on my podcast and that I'm recommending are now in my own playlist. If you go to Libro FM slash playlists, you can find it, which is so great. So I'm really excited to be here today with Abby Maslin, who's the author of the Washington Post bestseller, Love You Hard, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. She's also a nationally recognized advocate for traumatic brain injury and was named Marie Claire's Model Citizen of 2013. Abby started blogging about caring for her husband's traumatic brain injury weeks after his brutal attack. A graduate of St. Mary's College in Maryland, Abby holds master's degrees from Drexel University and American University in creative arts therapy and education. She's currently an elementary school teacher in Washington, D.C., where she lives with her husband, T.C., and their two children. So welcome, Abby. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. I'm so excited to talk to you. As I was just saying, I just absolutely adored your book, Love You Hard. It was so, I mean... It's just beautifully written and open and honest. And it was just like a service that you wrote this book for everybody else. So thank you. Thank you. you. That is just the nicest thing to hear. I can't tell you. So can you start out by just telling listeners the story in the beginning of what happened? You describe it beautifully in the beginning of the book about TC's injury and sort of how you found out about it from waiting on the porch that morning, just the whole beginning thing until you realized what had happened. Yeah. I mean, I was living a pretty ordinary life. I was 30 years old and I had just turned 30, woke up on the morning of August 18th, 2012. And my husband, we'd been married for three years at that point. My husband TC hadn't come home. And that was really unusual. I was married to this incredibly ambitious, focused, very disciplined man. And it wasn't like him to just not come home. So I woke up and, you know, it's interesting when our lives are in this moment of absolute transformation. And and this really was a moment of there was no going back. Our brains do a really good job at just kind of putting us in a state of denial about the reality of what was happening. And so for hours that morning, I told myself, you know, it's unlike him, but he probably went out drinking and slept at a friend's house or, you know, I made up a lot of excuses. And as it got further into the morning, I called my mother and I said, you know, TC didn't come home last night. And she was the voice I needed to hear in that moment because she said, very promptly, you need to call the police. 
And as soon as she said that, as soon as she uttered those words, my mind went to a completely different place of understanding that something bad had happened and knowing that there were a lot of possibilities for what that could be. So it turned out that my husband, who had been at a baseball game the night before with friends, had been walking home just seven blocks from our house when he was robbed and hit with a baseball bat. He was on the street for about eight hours before somebody found him and called 911. And so at that moment that I was calling the police, he was being taken to our local hospital where his brain was going to be operated on. So just complete shock. And it took, you know, it took quite a long time to put together all the pieces of that puzzle. It took more than just those hours waiting for him because it would actually take weeks longer before we realized, you know, what had happened in the details of the assault itself. But I knew pretty immediately that this was very serious. And there was a a pretty significant chance that he wasn't going to make it through that day, which was just hard to believe. You know, my husband was 29. He hadn't quite turned 30 yet. He was a couple weeks from his birthday. We were still living in that place of thinking we had our entire lives in front of us. We never imagined something like this could be part of our story. And so, you know, it just kind of put me into this state of absolute shock that took months to try to make sense of. Our brains are not then to integrate that kind of information all at once. Oh my gosh. I, I, I still cannot believe this whole thing happened. I really can't. Yeah. I mean, I feel like now you put the reader in a state of shock. <laughs> yeah. Well, for better or worse, but when I, you know, I decided to write this book, I, I really wanted it to read like a novel in a way where people would forget this was a life story, you know, a true story. And they would feel physically all of the kind of shock and trauma that I felt on that day to really get in that mindset of what it's like to have your life upended in an instant. And you wrote about shock so beautifully in the book. Can I, if I could just read this one section, you wrote, there is a shock that is as physical as it is emotional. It's the kind that reaches past your bones, digs into your nerves and claws itself around each of your veins. It's the kind that leaves you panting and incoherent nauseated and dizzy, begging your brain and your body to find their way back to each other so that your lungs will remember how to breathe again and your legs will remember how to hold you. Shock like that is hard to describe. It is the body's reaction to a declaration of war. I mean, wow. That, oh, I like literally I'm sitting here, I have goosebumps just reading the passage again. I mean, if you could like look back now on how you felt in that, in those first moments of shock and just awe and like horrifyingness of the whole situation, like, is there anything that you could even tell yourself that, that would have helped you get through that moment? Just breathe. Honestly, I mean, it's so interesting to me now because I wrote that passage about a year or two after the assault. And by that time, I had begun studying yoga and specifically trauma-sensitive yoga. And I had learned a lot about the ways that trauma manifests in our bodies and not just our brains. And so it was interesting when I sat down to write the book, I realized so much of what I was, you know, the details that I was sharing were physical details, kinesthetic details of what it felt like in my body on this journey. And so that first day and that shock, 
all I could do was try to breathe and just getting one breath out and exhaling and taking in another breath. That was how I made it through these hours that, you know, I would never wish upon anyone. But, you know, it sounds so simple just to breathe, right? And yet it has saved me in every difficult moment that I've ever had. Just that idea of I only have to live through this moment and then I can get through the next. Oh my gosh. And can you just share, how did you end up piecing together? I know you explained this in the book, but what ended up happening? And I don't want to give much airtime to the horrific people who did this to yeah. your husband, but just a summary of how you yeah. found out. And the, and the fact that you even had to go through the trial and all this at the same time, I oh. could not believe you had to endure this stuff. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I mean, like, talk about subplots like this way. <laughs> I can only think of it in that sense because my mind from the moment I found out TC was injured and had a traumatic brain injury, my mind was only on his recovery and whatever I could do to help him get back the things that he was likely to have lost, which was everything at that point, because doctors had told me that he was unlikely to ever walk or talk again. The side of his brain that was most injured was the left side where his communication centers are. So, you know, all these terrible possibilities on the table. And then on the side of that, <laughs> there is this kind of crazy criminal component of it that I had no experience with. And so all of a sudden I have like 30 detectives business cards in my wallet and I'm, you know, talking to the chief of police and I'm, you know, in front of news cameras asking for help and for witnesses. And I had to make this, these really difficult calls in the very first days of this. In fact, in the very first hours of this, where I was hardly coherent at all, but I had to make a decision about how public to make our story. And my husband is a very private person. So, you know, I took that into account at the same time that I had to weigh this idea that the only way we could find out who was responsible is if our story became known and people talked about it and people shared information. And that is actually how they found the young men who were responsible. It was, I had done a press conference and somebody had seen it and then had overheard some young boys in her neighborhood talking. And that's how those pieces got put back together. And then very long trials and criminal proceedings and legal proceedings and things I had no clue about. It all just felt like a sideshow. The only thing I really wanted to focus on was TC. And yet I was, you know, there were all these voices in my ears telling me that I, I needed to put my attention over there and think about, you know, forgiveness and justice and how I wanted this to turn out on that side. And I just didn't even have the mental bandwidth to really go there for a long time. I feel like that, just what you called the subplot, like that could be a whole yeah. other book. <laughs> just the trial. You know, like I feel like I've read books like that. Just anyway, yeah. I mean. You no, know, I, I was really conscientious of that too when I was writing Love You Hard because I wanted this book to be a book about personal transformation and mental transformation and reinventing life. I knew if I went too deeply into that other component of it, it would take away from what I feel are the most important moments of the story and all of the wisdom, you know, that I've acquired in, in kind of just traveling this journey. So many people who followed our story were very interested in the criminal component of it. It's interesting for me, the person living it, it was never the, you know, the primary thing on my mind. But 
the end result of the criminal case was that they're all in jail forever or what happened? No, no. And in fact, I believe just one, there were three young men involved. I believe just one is still in prison. And, you know, people had a lot of opinions about how I should feel about prison and how I should feel about, you know, sentences and all of that. I knew that whatever happened, whether, you know, they were caught, whether they were convicted, nothing was going to change our story. And I was going to have to find a sense of peace and forgiveness and justice aside from that. Um, and I really had to to kind of keep those separate in my brain and, and just say to myself, I, I'm not in charge of how these legal proceedings go. Um, the only thing I can control is my my processing of this event and my ability to just make the decision to keep moving forward and to keep living. For me, that's the greatest justice there is. And then not only did you have all of that, but you had a toddler, which is another sort of subplot, if you will, that a whole book could be about. So you're taking care of of Jack and TC at the same time. And then your mom gets sick. I mean, everything. Like, And you said at at one point in the book, you said, trust me, taking care of a two-year-old is the easy part in all of this. So what do you think, like, what got you through each day? And I know you add a lot of this in the book and everything, but just like on a day-to-day basis, aside from breathing, like, how did you just keep getting one foot in front of the other? Or was it just survival? And that's like, you didn't have a choice. So that's just what you did. I mean, I think it's it's interesting. I think partly it is survival. I think that there is this will inside each of us to live that is so beautiful and so strong. We rarely give ourselves credit for it. We do know how to put one foot in front of the other and keep going, even when it feels like the path in front of us is going to be, a, you know, not a promising one, you know, a scary one. But the other part of it was being a mother. And I kept going for Jack and he was 21 months old when this happened and turned to kind of right in the middle of all of the craziness of TC being in the hospital. And those small moments that I spent with him just looking into his eyes or pushing him on a swing, those little moments that I knew were precious, but I maybe didn't know how to pay attention to, you know, real closely before those moments became everything. He was the reminder that there was light in the world. So the book is dedicated to him. He truly, truly kept me going through some very dark moments. The scene that you wrote about him feeding your dad when he was dying, I mean, I started crying. That was, I mean, just the image of that, like having a baby feed a dying man. Oh my gosh. I mean, it was just- You know, it's life and it's death and it's happening all at the same time every day. You know, we have to live in autopilot mode, I think sometimes just to get through kind of the necessary logistics of being a human on this planet. But when we stop and we really look at the juxtaposition of all these things and this cycle of life and the birth and and death, it's so exquisite. It, It just, I marvel at it. And that moment of watching my dad who had been sick for several years by the time TC was injured and then passed away 18 months after TC was assaulted, that moment of watching, you know, this life that had just begun taking care of a life that was fading. It was so much for me, as I wrote in the book, it was so much for me. I wanted to look away because to look at it would be to know all the truths of the world and everything that ever matters in life, to look right at it. And, you know, 
I wrote this book in part because I hope people will take this story as an opportunity to look right at their lives. It's pretty incredible. Um, everything that we are given on a daily basis just to get to wake up every day. And the fact that you feel this level of gratitude despite everything that's been heaped onto your plate is, it's its honestly beautiful. There's like no other way to say it. I mean, you you have this fantastic blog, which once I started reading for this interview, I was like, oh my gosh, like hours have gone by. I was like, I've got to deal with my oh. kids here. I was like, I can't start reading this blog. But you have one post that was gratitude saved my life. And you wrote so beautifully about yeah. grief. And you said, Grief is a terrible, wonderful thing. It is the teacher of all things important and worthy of knowing. It is the dark force that binds and breaks the universe at its will, and it is the wise friend patting you on the back, insistent that you stop and smell the roses before there are no roses to smell. And I thought that passage was so great because grief obviously can be so terrible, obviously. I mean, that's I mean, goes without saying, but yeah. there's something yeah. that happens to people who go through a period of grief like this that is something that you can't attain in any other way. Even if you read a powerful book like yours, if you haven't like had the loss or the realization yourself, sometimes it's hard to get there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and that's another reason for telling the story and sharing it. I, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if we could all wake up to our lives a little bit more without having had a terrible thing before yes, us? Yes, for you know? sure. Gratitude is this incredible strategy for survival. It really is. But it's available to all of us all the time. It's just, it's a choice. And I think when you go through something really challenging, you kind of hit this crossroads, at least this was true for me, where you make a choice about whether you are going to harden around the edges and try to protect yourself from all the dangers that you now know truly do exist in the world, or you're going to soften. And and if you choose to soften, you're going to open at the same time and you're going to open yourself to things that you didn't even know were possible, to mindsets that, you know, they'll show you everything you wanted to know about life. And so you really do make this choice when you're on a journey like this. I also, I thought it was so great in the book that you didn't try to like sugarcoat anything like that you you included the parts where you just couldn't you felt like you couldn't go on and you included the parts where you got mad at TC cuz I was in my head I was like how is she putting up with like you know there are times where I was like is she not like the all the range of emotions that I would expect anybody in your situation to feel you then showed us that you felt which I felt like was so open and honest and even when you were on your yoga retreat at the end and asking like how can I love my husband again? Or will I ever love my husband again? Like, oh my gosh, it's like to admit it is also so brave, right? You can love someone in some ways and yet struggle so much in other ways. I I don't know. Yeah, it's terrifying. To be that honest with yourself, Is it's terrifying. I felt like a terrible, guilty person for so many moments on this journey, particularly because, you know, I think women particularly are kind of fed this line about caregiving being this noble act that we are just, you know, so blessed to be able to serve others, you know. And I didn't feel that way for a lot of moments. Caregiving is a thing that happened to me and (laughs) I didn't have a choice 
to accept it. And there is beauty in it for sure. But I still wanted a life for myself. And even acknowledging that, you know, to myself in private was very scary. And and what I realized though, is that I I can't be the only person who feels this way. All the things that I'm feeling, this, this range of emotions, like the rage I feel at a man who I love, but I'm so frustrated by because he's standing right in front of me and he looks like a man I was in love with. And he's not that same man. I mean, these are things that are they're hard to say to the people who, you know, would like to leave you with a platitude about, right. <laughs> you know, God never gives you more than you can handle and walk away. It's really hard to turn around and say, really? Because I, you know, this feels like too much. But <laughs> for me, <laughs> this feels like more than I can handle right now. No, but for me, you know, the idea of living something untrue, I knew that would bury me. I knew that would eat me alive. That if I couldn't get honest with my doubts and my fears here, if I tried to swallow them, I would make myself sick, you know? And I think we know enough about trauma to know these days that when we try to suppress it like that, it doesn't work. You know, we have to get we have to get in front of it and we have to face it and we have to be really honest, especially about our uncertainty. We're all just uncertain beings, but it is okay to admit that. And for me, just the admitting of it was, was really liberating. Well, it was, those were some of the best parts I felt like in the book, just those open, you know, cause every, I feel like fighting, even if you haven't had a trauma, like a fight, people don't talk about the ins and outs of marriage as much. I feel like, you know, there's like this curtain that goes down. And I mean, I, for one, you know, I'm divorced and I never used to talk about what was going on. And I still don't talk about what used to go on, but it goes on. And so when you read things that go on in the intimate lives of other people, it just, it's just beyond, it's really helpful. And, you know, I don't know. I thought it was. Well, you know, we're all, we're all living these like very unique circumstances in in one way. And then all the feelings around those circumstances are pretty universal. There were times when I was writing this book and I'm writing about how difficult it is to be married to somebody who I can't communicate with anymore because he literally cannot speak. And it's really no different than being in a marriage where you communicate differently and you keep missing each other and you're saying the thing and you think your partner can hear it and your partner can't hear it like that. That's just being in a relationship. And so, you know, for me, as much as this story was about brain injury, it was also just for me, a journey about partnership and, and figuring out how to change. Because I think when you sign up for marriage, at least I did not realize I was signing up for a constant evolution. I was signing up for, well, if you change, then I'm going to change too. And you know, TC's brain injury taught me a lot about the brain, but at first I only thought it applied to him and his brain. So I'm, you know, learning from doctors that it's possible to, to retrain your brain and to create new neurological connections. And I'm thinking, this is great news. I can do this for TC. And what I realized a year into it, you know, as I'm looking around at my life and feeling like, I don't have a marriage anymore. You know, everything's kind of crumbled. I realize I have to do the same thing for myself. I have to treat my brain in the same way. I have to believe in its capacity to change. I have to believe in my own capacity to be something more than I was yesterday, to be the kind of person who can manage this situation and still serve my own life and my own purpose, which is hard to do as a woman. It's hard to do, especially as a caregiver for others. Totally. 
Even when you said, you know, you did, you did this great video on Brainline just to shift gears slightly. Yeah, yeah. And I want to hear about how you got involved with, with Brainline and, you know, eventually you became this woman of the year and all this amazing stuff. But you have this blog called Reinventing Our Family on that site. And you talked about how you were so used to doing things when TC was more incapacitated. You just took over and ran everything. And then as he got better... He, you know, he was giving baths and doing all these other things, and it was hard for you to let go in a way, being the primary doer. What was that like for you? Yeah. Well, I think I'm a super control freak. I think I learned that from writing this book, examining a lot of moments <laughs> in, in the room where I'm being like, hmm, I really like to be in control. But, you know, when the person you love is, you know, even when you have a newborn baby, you know that you have to do everything for that baby. And so when TC was, you know, in a coma, which he was in for weeks, and he was in a rehab facility for months after that, you know, it was very clear to me that I had to do everything, that I had to pay the bills, that I had to be in touch with his employer, that I had to take out the trash, all those things. It was obvious. But as he started to get better, which is a very different trajectory than some other illnesses and injuries, I had to learn how to back off. And his recovery and his ability to regain independence, you know, was dependent on me backing off. And that was hard for me because I really felt at that point, as hard as it was to be without a partner, it was very empowering to know I could do these things myself. And so part of my reluctance to let him take over was also this sense of if he ever leaves me again, if he dies, if I'm alone, I'll have settled into, you know, being dependent on somebody else again. And that's scary. And so I, I really had to acknowledge that for myself that to be in a partnership with him again meant that I was going to have to be vulnerable and my vulnerability at that point was going to be to let somebody else take care of me. Wow. So amazing. And I feel like you're so self-aware. I like, you know, as you can tell from reading your book, but it's just like you're so articulate and talking about your own feelings and your own experience. (laughs) I, you know, I, writing was really my therapist for this, for this adventure, (laughs) adventure, maybe being the wrong word, but, you know, I started to write maybe 10 days after TC's assault, I sat down and tried to write an email to our family members about how he was doing because people were asking these really innocuous questions about like, well, is he better yet? And it made me realize that like, they had no idea what a brain injury was the same way I had no idea what a brain injury was before it happened. So when they're saying, is he better yet? And I'm thinking of the respirator that's breathing for him and his head that's swollen, you know, to twice its size and his eye that's not opening. And the fact that he can probably never speak again, I realized I was going to have to educate people about this injury. And more than that, I I wanted them to feel what I felt, which was heartbroken. I wanted them to know the kind of man that we had lost because if my husband didn't make it, God forbid, he was only 29 years old. This world might not know TC Maslin. And I wanted the world to know that blog, you know, it just took on a life of its own. So it started out as an email and my sister said, why don't you make it into a blog? That way people can read it or not read it. You can reach whoever wants to be, you know, in the loop. And I couldn't have imagined at that point that it would turn into a book. But for me, it was really just this cathartic way of processing something that, you know, made no sense, continues to make no sense, really, but has allowed me to kind of dive for the wisdom in it and and really try to mine those 
tidbits that I think are going to help me live differently from this point on. They're going to help me live more meaningfully. And how did it become a book then? Yeah, I wrote an essay in um, March 2013, and it was called Love You Hard. And it was, uh, I put it in an essay contest called Notes and Words, which was sponsored by Kelly Corrigan, who's a memoirist. And it won the contest, which was so amazing. And one of the prizes was a phone consultation with a literary agent. She was Kelly's agent at the time. And so I got on this phone call with a literary agent having no idea whether I would ever even want to write a book. And it was funny because I remember this so well. We were in Canada getting therapy for TC. So he's in the next room doing speech therapy. And I'm like in the waiting room having my phone call with a literary agent thinking, a year ago, my life was very different. How did this all happen? And she asked me if I had written anything. And I had about 20 pages of, you know, what would become this book. And she offered to represent me. So really from there, I had to make that commitment to myself that I was going to see this project through. But I hit a lot of roadblocks. You know, I got a year into writing this book and realized that my marriage was crumbling and I couldn't write a book with a happy ending. And I was still very much living this story. I needed the time to process it and to close a chapter and open a new one before I could put this out into the world. So it took about six years altogether. Wow. And how has it been since it's come out? Yeah, it's been, in some ways, life is still the same, which I think is a good thing to remember because the idea of writing a book and publishing it is so exciting, and but it's not very grounding. So <laughs> nice to remember that you're, you'll still have children and they'll still want to be fed and you'll still have responsibilities. And in other ways, it's just opened up just beautiful dialogues that I feel so privileged to be part of. You know, I've been all over the country promoting this book and the people who have come to my signings, I mean, they're there because they're people like me, people who have lived through something and the stories they have shared with me. I mean, it's just so humbling to be trusted with people's stories. And I feel every time, you know, I have an event just more deeply connected to humanity in general. You know, we cannot hear someone's story and then not see ourselves in them and and know that we are all so, so deeply connected. And that's a really incredible feeling. So I'm really, I'm grateful the book is out there. It's, I'm hopeful that it will be helpful to people who are going through, you know, any kind of life event or, you know, just people who want a shakeup <laughs> in their, in their way of thinking about life. But yeah, now I've got to move on to the next project. So it's, it's an exciting chapter to be putting to bed in, in one way. And what's your next project? Yeah. I, you know, I am a special educator, so that might, that keeps me very busy, but I am definitely going to continue writing. I have another book in me, but it's very different from this. And so right now I'm just writing for fun. I'm, you know, this was an emotional labor, this book was, but what I'm working on right now is, is just for the fun of it, for the joy of writing, because despite the fact that I've lived these very dark chapters, I am a pretty lighthearted, you know, energetic person. And, and I do want to remember to, to make time and room and space for joy and for lightness. And, and that's why we're here on earth. We have a responsibility to, to practice all of that. So 
So it'll be something very different. That's all I can say. Wow. Well, you are super inspiring. Oh my gosh. Just, I mean, this is like the most uplifting. I mean, the book was amazing, but just hearing you talk about everything, it's it's really fantastic. Thank you for sharing all of your story with me and for everybody listening. And it's just really fantastic. So I'm so grateful. I just want to know also, so so I I've been following online and everything, but what's the latest with TC now? So what's like, how is he doing yeah, and how are, so, how, how are, and now you have two kids now and Rosie and everybody, yeah. like, how is it all going? <laughs> it's all like very ordinary in one way, right? So, you know, we went from thinking that we were never going to have a life that resembled the life that we lost to working really, really hard, particularly TC, who just drove his therapy so hard. He went back to work as an energy analyst two and a half years after his injury, which is incredible. He lives with physical disabilities, you know, every day. He, he He's got very limited mobility on one half of his body. He's got limited eyesight. He will always have aphasia, which is the communication disorder that he suffers from. But he he navigates around it just remarkably. And, you know, people who are meeting him for the first time don't often realize there's anything about him that, that might be a little different. So we, you know, we powered through that. He got back to work. And a couple years after that, we were sitting there deciding whether we could bring another child into this in this family, which was something we always wanted. But I kind of put that dream to bed, and I, I talk about it in the book a lot. I, I I still really wanted to be a mother again, and so now we've got a, a wild, very very strong-willed, really intelligent three-year-old girl named Rosie, and Jack is eight now. So they keep us very busy. Life life probably looks pretty similar to me for me as it does for you know, any other working moms out there, but I'm really grateful for that because underneath the surface, it feels quite different and it will always feel quite different. I I understand the subtleties of what makes our life work. And I realize that everything is just very delicate. You know, we, we have to manage our lives in a way that TC can get enough rest and be his best person and, and get all the things he needs in his recovery. And so it's all kind of precarious and wonderful. And it's a very happy chapter. And I'm, I'm really grateful to know exactly what I have in the moment that I have it, because I, I can appreciate it in a way I didn't before. Oh, wow. Well, Abby, thank you so much. Everybody needs to go out and get Love You Hard by Abby Maslin, a memoir of marriage, brain injury, and reinventing love. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Oh, thank you so much, Debbie. Thanks again to my sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and at Zibby Owens and my new podcast at Kids Do Have Time to Read. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com. Thank you.